Welcome to Stacy on the Right with your host, Stacy Washington. Relative peace and times of great tension. While this cycle repeats, the light of prosperity and innovation has burned bright for most of the world. History is always evolving, and there comes a time when only a few are called upon to make a difference. But the question is what difference will the few make? The past doesn't have to be the future. Out of the darkness can come the light, and the light of hope can burn bright. What if a people that share a common and rich heritage can find a common future? Their story is well known, but what will be their sequel? Destiny Pictures presents a story of opportunity, a new story, a new beginning, one of peace, two men, two leaders, one destiny. A story about a special moment in time when a man is presented with one chance that may never be repeated. What will he choose? To show vision and leadership? Or not? So there's more to it after that. And I thought it was just so I I got to tip my hat. It is fascinating. And in the video, they have images of I think it's Michael Jordan dunking uh, the ball. They have images of factories and people working. They have images of uh, brief, very brief images of war. But most of the images are of prosperity. There's a couple of images of Donald Trump on Air Force One, you know, uh, coming down images of Kim Jong-un and, and the president. It's one of those things where you can hear by the music, you can hear by the the sound of it, that it it's meant to evoke a response. There are even some images in the video of our aircraft carriers um, launching planes. And if you if you have never so there's a show on uh, TLC I don't know if it still runs as in they make new shows, but it's called How It's Made. And one of the different episodes that they had uh, on there was like an expose. I'm not even sure if it was a How It's Made episode, but I know it was on TLC and it was about aircraft carriers. Now, if you're a, um, a military hardware person, this is the show for you to watch. It's all about how it's not just that the planes are on top of the aircraft carrier and they take off and land there and what the men and women who work on the aircraft carrier have to do to make that possible. But it's also about the fact that an aircraft carrier has elevators on it so that aircraft that need to be worked on can go onto the section where the elevator is and they're lowered down below, slid off into an area where crew chiefs can take them apart and work on them like cars, only they're aircraft. And so they showed that they showed some of the technological advances um and and in that piece it just makes you you get a little you know you have you you say to yourself glory to god it's like what what can't people do when they put their heads together and decide they want to do something with technology you know landing planes on a metal boat that has an elevator in it to put the planes down below 
It's almost like the things you see the kids play with when they make Lego creations. Only these are real things that are, you know, they're, they're huge. They're, they're things that we can actually use. And so the imagery in this piece is, it's perfect. It's the kind of stuff that you want people to think about when they're considering, they, they present the stark reality of war in images, and then they present the opportunities and, and everything else that's not war and how a partnership could bring all those other things to reality. And so I'm, I'm glad that the president made this, um, but it's not something that they were able to just, this isn't a bunch of imagery and voiceover and especially having it voiced over in Korean that they were able to just put together over the weekend before the summit. This was the result of the first meetings of um, Secretary Pompeo going to Korea and meeting with leadership from North Korea and initiating the relationship. And then he brought information back and that's what they were operating off of, including their signals intelligence and satellite imagery and all of that stuff. They were able to come up with this. And I got to say, I, I thought it was fascinating um, watching the video and understanding you kind of have to back yourself out of, I see a video here, four minutes and 13 seconds. I know for a fact, based on what people charge me to, to put videos together, not only is it not cheap, it's very time consuming getting a person to agree to edit video for you and put it together into a presentable form and add background music. And then the voiceover adds yet another layer of complexity and you have to do it with someone who actually speaks good Korean that would be, you know, done in a way that's not offensive, you know, spoken well. All of those things had to come together and it had to be finished and ready to go when the president left for the G7, (laughs) right? Because the president went to the G7 first. So I saw some information from the White House Press Corps. They traveled over 24,000 miles. They spent 48 hours in the air flying. And they visited a number of countries between the day that the president was wheels up for uh, the G7 summit in Canada to their arrival back at home. Pretty amazing. So I just, you know, this this is where we share the truth. And we, we you know, you you don't have to change your mind. But I do feel like one of the things all of us should be able to agree on is what's true and what's not true. So the the assertion that the president was that our president wasn't prepared, that he didn't uh, spend time getting ready for this. The fact that he said a a number of times, I've been preparing for this all my life. He meant he's been preparing for this all his life and that he's had these kinds of consequential meetings with people before and he knows how to prepare for a meeting. It didn't mean that he didn't spend that that he spent zero time preparing for this meeting, but he wasn't going to tell us what he did because he didn't want everyone to know, including Kim Jong Un, before they had a chance to meet. Very logical, very very sensible. Um, so now let's pivot over to you know there were a number of primaries yesterday. June twelfth was primary day all over the country for a number of races, and Joe Scarborough over at Morning Joe is really upset that Mark Sanford lost his race in the Republican Party primary. Joe Scarborough thinks that the Republican Party is now a Trumpist cult. It's number seven. Mark Sanford survives a career-ending, what should have been a career-ending scandal. Uh, 
uh, as governor, lies about going on the Appalachian Trail, yeah. becomes the butt of late night jokes. Yeah. Nobody said that guy would ever yeah. be elected back to Congress, and he won. Yeah. Two years later, he votes with Trump maybe 95% of the time. Not quite, but close. 87, close. 87 I believe. 87% says one or two things yeah. about Trump that people don't like. Off of his head. And is so conservative. Yeah. Conservative, really mm -hmm. conservative, not a Trumpist. Mm. So conservative that even the Freedom Caucus yeah. said we would not have passed the tax cuts without yeah. Mark. There is no more conservative person on protecting uh, tax dollars, balancing the budget, paying down the debt. It's been Mark's. That's been Mark's sole yeah. obsession since 1994. But primary voters are like, no, no. You know what? We don't care that he's like one of the most conservative people. In, in Congress, he said one or two bad things about Trump. Yep. It's, uh, well, look, there are two things to say. There are a lot of things to say about this, but the two. How, why don't we just start to say it, it, it has devolved into a cult? That, well, that's Primary the, the first, voters the in the Republican Party have devolved into a Trumpist cult. Right. Well, it's, a, it's, it's clear that conservatism, liberalism, voting records, none of those things matter. It is a cult of personality, and the president has an extraordinary hold over his base. So the person that you're listening to speaking there is John Heileman, and he's on with Mika Brzezinski, who you don't hear in that clip, and then, of course, Joe Scarborough. And they're discussing this race where uh, Mark Sanford, who has the interesting background, you know, he said he was hiking the Appalachians when he was really in Argentina with his girlfriend, and he, uh, you know, divorced his wife for this woman. They're no longer together. Uh, the wife was the mother of his four children, and so it was just a huge scandal and instead of going away, he rallied the voters around himself and went into the Senate. And so now he's been primaried and they're blaming his loss on statements he made about the president. So I, I guess for me, when I listen to the MSNBC hosts say it's a cult of personality that Donald Trump is the main reason why Mark Sanford lost, they're completely disregarding the, uh, the, the opponent. What did the opponent say? The other thing that I find interesting is MSNBC is a news organization. They could easily partner with uh, Kinnipiac or uh, Morning Consult or anyone. Like, so news agencies have the ability to, to make a phone call or an email and ask a polling agency Let's partner together and do a poll. Let's find out why the voters actually ousted, you know, Mark Sanford for his primary challenger. And they can do the poll of, you know, you can do a teeny poll of 300 voters, which only takes a couple of days to stand up and complete. You can do a, a much more uh, in-depth poll with seven questions. I mean, anyone can contact a polling organization and put together a poll. You know, you have to tell them what your budget is and they'll execute a poll for you. I know organizations here in Missouri that privately execute polls to kind of gauge voter confidence on this or that so that they can move an issue. They either decide not to move it or to move it based on what they learn through their polling. And they use other other things, too. But the polls are a part of the equation. So wouldn't it have been great if uh, Morning Joe had said, you know, instead of making these round statements and condemnations of the, the voters who made this decision, if they'd said, well, you know, when, when you look at the, the candidacy of uh, this, this Mark Sanford, um, you know, we're seeing this, we're seeing that. 
the person who is uh, running against him is saying this, is saying that. Over and over and over again, we have the opportunity to understand exactly what happened. And instead of the people at MSNBC doing that, they chose instead to basically malign um, the voters. So the person who beat him is Katie Arrington. So could it be that the voters there decided they didn't want Mark Sanford anymore because they do remember his background and his history? And even though he was a reliable vote and helped pass pass the uh, the tax reform bill, he's also someone who, if you compare him to the Me Too movement, yes, he had a consensual affair, but it was a very ugly story, very ugly. And they gave him the opportunity to go to the Senate, and he didn't say nice things about the president. And so all of those things mixed together in a maelstrom, and then you've got Katie Arrington, who they felt was a good candidate. Now, sure enough, Donald Trump, instead of coming out early for Katie Arrington, he sent a tweet out with just hours left at the polls saying she was the candidate to support. And he referenced, you know, the fact that Sanford would be better off in Argentina. Now, Arrington, during the course of the campaign, did blast Sanford as a never Trumper. And, um, you know, these are all factors. So it's it's not... It's not that I don't, you know, it it could be that the majority of the angst that was felt towards Sanford and the reason that he was, you know, primaried and he's no longer there is because he said things that were not flattering to Donald Trump. But I don't think that's it. I don't think that's the entirety of it. And I just, you know, this is one of those situations where I, when I see a story like this and I hear the audio from Morning Joe, I wish that they would do that extra step of finding out why, because I think it would be interesting. It would actually be an interesting story for a news organization like that to reach out to a polling organization or to check with anyone who did exit polling and find out why the voters were so much more energized by Katie Arrington. It could be that they wanted to send a woman from their state to the Senate. It could have really been less about Donald Trump and more about who she is and her campaign style and her energy than Mark Sanford. We won't know that, of course, unless someone is willing to drop some change and ask the voters. So I guess we'll see, won't we? I mean, we'll see what she can do in the general and uh, we'll see if that support lasts through. But it's an interesting story. Uh, One of the interesting stories from last night, there were a number of them. All right, we get to speak with Arno Michaelis, former white supremacist and co-author of The Gift of Our Wounds, right after these messages. Here's some great news. If you missed the deadline to sign up for a healthcare plan, or more importantly, if you signed up for a plan that you're just not happy with, you still have a choice. It's called MediShare. MediShare is a Christian healthcare sharing program. It's been around for 25 years. They have hundreds of thousands of members all across the country. And get this, over the years, MediShare members have shared more than $2.5 billion of each other's medical bills. Best of all, 
You could save a lot of money with MediShare. The typical savings for a family is about 500 bucks a month. Your savings may be less or more, but think about what you could do with that extra money every month. So if you think you're stuck with a high-cost health plan that doesn't have much to offer, think again. You can join MediShare anytime, so call them today and check it out. Here's the number to find out more. There's no pressure. They're super easy to talk to. Just hit star star 345. That's star star 345. Star Star 345. Hello, this is Bishop Harry Jackson of Hope Christian Church in Beltville, Maryland. Jesus said you would do greater works than he did. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way to Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives, and as you live, I will not leave you. If we'll go emotionally and spiritually where they went physically, we'll come into the truths and the transforming and transferring of the mantle that happened with Elisha will happen with us in our generation. Elijah was the old school generation. He was the 84, 85 year old, nearly 90 year old, who has been the Billy Graham of the generation. And he says, I've walked with you, I've talked with you, I've told you, I've helped you, I've instructed you. Now, son, it's your turn. This is about passing the baton generationally. Some of us who are my age have to recognize that the 80-some-year-olds are all rolling off the scene. And whether we think ourselves to be young, small in our own sight, we're going to have to step up and be the only spiritual fathers that this generation can know. Join us this Sunday morning at 6251 Avondale Road in Beltro or on the web at thehopeconnection.org. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on Urban Family Talk. Hey, 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 it's such a pleasure to be with you. Happy hump day. <laughs> and what a guest we have for you right now. I'm so excited. Um, it's my pleasure to welcome Arno Michaelis to the program, former white supremacist and co-author of the Gift of Our Wounds. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, my pleasure, Stacey. And uh, good job nailing the pronunciation of my name. Oh, I, so I kind of flubbed it a little bit earlier, and I'm like, I'm getting this right when he comes on. I'm totally getting this right. So thank you. <laughs> I, I don't. So yeah, job. I want to get it right because it's, it, well, first of all, nice, nice last name. That's unique. I don't think I've ever seen that before. Uh, in my case, it's Prussian. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's okay, first of all, The Gift of Our Wounds. Why did you write that book? And then we'll get into kind of the 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 underlying stuff there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh The Gift of Our Wounds was written by myself and a man uh Pardeep Singh Kalika. Pardeep lost his father Sethwan Singh Kalika in the August 5th, 2012 Sikh Temple shooting where a white supremacist gunman 
uh, murdered his dad and five other people. And it was after that that Party reached out to me, really in an attempt to understand how someone could do that, but also to, to hopefully find some accountability, which, seeing as the, the gunman was a member of the gang that I had helped to start, I definitely did then, as I do now, feel a sense of responsibility for that violence, and it's important to me to offer accountability to survivors like Party and um, to, to really anyone who's been the victim of, of hate crimes or any kind of violence, and, and hopefully be part of their healing process. So that the idea of the gift of our wounds is actually really uh, deep and resounding with so many people. Uh, Pardeep's a, a trauma therapist now, and when he's seeing patients, um, you know, kind of before or after the actual therapy, they're small talking a little bit, and his patient will be like, oh, what are you doing in Pardeep's? Like, yeah, I just wrote a book called The Gift of Our Wounds. And for people who are going through challenges, just hearing that title, hearing that phrase makes them light bulbs kind of go off and, and they can sometimes see an entirely different perspective on, on their challenges and their struggles that they're going through. So the, the main reason we wrote that book is for anyone who's going through any kind of struggle in their life, we believe after reading it, they can get a different perspective on the struggle they're going through and, and really believe that they can reach a point where they'll not only survive that struggle, but they'll be able to look back on it and say, I'm glad that I went through that because it made me a better person. And, and ideally, if it can bring them to a point where they can help other people through their struggles also, that, that's a really beautiful thing. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm on the Amazon page, and it's the, so the, the entire title is The Gift of Our Wounds, A Sikh and a Former White Supremacist Find Forgiveness After Hate. It's hardcover. Um, it lists you and, of course, Pardeep as the authors. And this, the blurb is the powerful story of a friendship between two men, one Sikh and one skinhead, that resulted in an outpouring of love and a mission to fight against hate. So one of the things that pops into my mind as I'm talking to you and you are a former white supremacist is I, I'm like dying to know what made you a white supremacist in the first place. Why did you feel the need to, to be a white supremacist? That, that's a great question. Um, the very simple answer is, is suffering. And it's important to qualify that by saying that I had a, an idyllic childhood compared to, to most children on the face of this earth. I grew up in a nice house in a nice neighborhood. My parents were together. They both loved me very much, um, as did all the adults in my life. Everybody was just gushing over me about how gifted I was and what a genius I was and how I was so special and wonderful. But I grew up in an alcoholic household, and um, that really damaged my parents' relationship. Uh, my my dad is the one stricken with that disease, and and my dad's an amazing person. He's he's my hero, and he's always been a huge supporter um, of me. What I'm doing now, and despite the challenges he went through in my childhood, um, even back then he always let me know he loved me, and that, that was always crystal clear. But his disease made life really difficult for my mom at times, and she was suffering, and I could sense her misery as a kid. And that's when I started lashing out at other kids. Um, looking back, like everything I do now is all storytelling and it's kind of Monday morning psychoanalysis. So I, I gather from my looking at my childhood that 
while everybody's telling me how wonderful I was because I was suffering, I was like, no, I'm not wonderful. Actually, I'm horrible. And if you don't mm. believe me, watch what I'm going to do to this kid. Mm. And so I started out as a bully on the school bus as early as kindergarten. I started to get uh, a, a kind of a stimulation from lashing out and causing problems, especially when I could get adults to be like tearing their hair out about my behavior. And I, I got a, a thrill from that. I got a sense of power from that. Uh, other kids were afraid of me. And as I grew older, I, I needed to keep feeding this habit like any other kind of addiction. And like substance abuse, what gets you high the first time, like 10 times later, does not. So you have mm. to keep escalating the substance. And in my case, my substance was antisocial behavior. Mm. So I went from being a bully on the school bus to fights in the schoolyard, to fights in the street, breaking and entering, vandalism, uh, burglary. By the time I was 14, I started drinking myself. I, the first time I drank, I drank till I passed out, and I drank like that for another 20 years. By the time I was 16, I was very acclimated to violence. I had been violent since I was a little kid. It was second nature to me. Um, and I, I saw hate as just like another part of the thrill. Like I got a thrill from saying, not only I, I hate you to like principals and teachers, but like I hate the cops and I hate the government and I hate this society and I hate everything. And, and that's who I was when I heard white power skinhead music which was, uh, I was already into punk, which I, I still love. I never want to make it sound like punk is some kind of gateway drug to become an white power skinhead. But um, to me, punk was about breaking things and like raw aggression and fury. And this white power skinhead music I heard had that same musical style, but the lyrics were all about blood and soil and race and nation, like all of the same, exact same themes that Adolf Hitler used to, to corrupt the minds of so many Germans to the point of mass murder back in the 30s and 40s. And I wasn't ignorant of that. I, I knew where this stuff came from, but I didn't care. All I cared was that it, it made people angry, it repulsed people, and it gave me this thrill of like being part of this like forbidden rebellion that society, you know, us against the world kind of vibe. And as friends and I started a white power skinhead gang of our own, and, and I had been in punk bands screaming stuff for a couple of years already, so we started a, our own white power skinhead band, and it was like a magnet for disgruntled white kids. They just, like, flocked to us, and, and we scooped them all up, and our, our gang grew, and as we radiated hostility out to the world, the world, being the system that it is, reflected the hostility back to us in no uncertain terms, oftentimes in multiples, so within six months, my best friend who was in my band and who I started the gang with went to prison for shooting a kid that came to do a drive-by in our house. Within a couple of years, um, another very close friend of mine was shot and killed in a street fight as he was out practicing hate and violence as I had taught him to do. And as these horrible things happened to us because of our actions, according to the ideology that we're buying into, rather than, like, you know, pause and be like, oh, whoa, what are we doing? We, we saw all these bad things happening as validation of the paranoia of the us versus them narrative, and, and we just kind of spiraled further into it, and, and I went on like that for seven years. Mm. Wow. So you, so this, this, you've, you've completely explained that this is coming out of a place of hurt for you, um, and your reaction to the hurt was to become 
you know, hurtful to other people. And then exactly. you got the idea for the white supremacy part of it from music that you listened to. And then you allowed that to be kind of the seed that blossomed into this huge kind of horrible, but, but very deliberate action that you took in forming a gang and kind of gathering people together so that they could commiserate on all of their misery and then kind of direct that outwards. So exactly. what made you stop? Like how says, cause what you're describing to me sounds so un- all encompassing and so complete, you know, when you, when you have this idea in your mind and then it's completely validated and then you gather together with a bunch of other people who believe the same thing, even when there's wrong coming from it, the deaths of your friends, your mind is not changed by that. It just kind of reinforces the idea that everyone's against you and specifically certain groups of people are to blame for what you're experiencing. So how do you come out of that place to where you are now? Um, yeah, yeah, that's a great summary of it. And it's important to understand that, that um, any kind of fundamentalist ideology, whether it's political or religious or racial or whatever, uh, it, it, you have to exist in this state of siege. You, you have to have a sense of oppression that drives your thoughts and your actions. And whether or not that oppression is validated by the rest of society doesn't matter. In fact, if, if the rest of society does not validate the oppression, it's even better. And what we did to get kids involved is we would find out what's wrong in their life. So if, if a white kid, 16-year-old, doesn't have a girlfriend... I'm going to tell them that that's because this is the late 80s. So it, it, back in that time, I would say, well, it's because the Jews are putting Michael Jordan on TV and all of these billboards, and they're, they're trying to convince white men that Michael Jordan's the ideal man, and that's why these girls don't like you. Like, never mind you don't take a shower, you don't go to school, you don't do anything to better yourself. Like, it's way easier to, to blame someone else. And when that happens, you get in this kind of death spiral that can lead to atrocities like the Sikh Temple shooting that happened August 5th, 2012. In my case, I was incredibly fortunate that there was a, a, a sense of exhaustion like from day one when I got involved in these gangs. I, I was already tired. Like, being hateful and violent, it, it sucks the life out of you, and it had been sucking the life out of me for 16 years already. Mm. Um, so it, it, from day one, I'm tired from day one, I'm exhausted, but just like uh, a heroin junkie who's utterly exhausted by the drug, they don't care. They just want more heroin and, and they know it sucks. They know it's a miserable way to live, but they, they don't care about that. All they want is the thrill. And so that's kind of how I, I dealt with the exhaustion at first, but the exhaustion came from all these different angles. One of them being that I knew what I was doing was wrong. There were times early on even where I, like, as I was hitting somebody or as I'm kicking somebody, I have a voice inside me saying, like, what is wrong with you? Why are you doing this? You're, you're a horrible person for, for doing this. And I didn't have the courage to, to even acknowledge that voice, much less answer it. And that, but the voice didn't go away. So I had to constantly expend energy to kind of drown that out, like a little kid putting their fingers in the ears going, no, 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 you know, trying right. to, to have some kind of distraction. Well, my, my distraction was was alcohol, which is never an excuse, um, the white power music, surrounding myself with angry white kids, the, the rhetoric, the, the violence itself. So that whole process was exhausting. What was also exhausting was uh, cutting myself off from the rest of society uh, particularly media and culture that I had once enjoyed. I, I'm a lifelong like film, TV, music geek, 
And as a white power skinhead or any you know alt right or white neo Nazis, what anybody in that whole genre, and, and this this bears true for Islamist groups or any kind of political extremists also, you you cannot take in any information that doesn't affirm your ideology. So anything on TV was Jewish propaganda to destroy our minds as, as good Aryan white men, everything, anything out of Hollywood was, any music that wasn't our music was. And, and like, I grew up loving this stuff, um, loving Hollywood movies. I, I couldn't watch Blade Runner. I couldn't watch Seinfeld on TV. I couldn't root for the Green Bay Packers which I did all those things anyway, and, and, and while I did them, I had this, like, this ridiculous shame for enjoying them. So Wait, it's like, okay. that was because there were black people on there, or is, is it because Seinfeld was, had Jewish cast and, and yeah, the, the well, football it, team it, had... It's the, the, as you can imagine, like, white power types have a very long list of people that they hate, <sighs> and black people are pretty high up on that list, but at the top of the list... Uh, probably number two would be Jews, and number one is the white race traitor. Like a white person who is not racist is is your greatest enemy. And all everything on TV was seen as because Seinfeld, obviously, like everybody on that show is Jewish, and and it's the genius of Jewish humor that makes it so funny and has made it such a hit. And I to this day I still watch it almost daily, and it, it still brings me joy. But back then, I, I couldn't do that, and I felt like an idiot because of it. And it, it really made my anti-Semitism seem as stupid as it was. And <clears throat> watching the, the Packers, the, any NFL football team is a bunch of black guys, a bunch of white guys, and they not only have to get along, they have to like function as a well-oiled machine. They have to care about each other. They have to like think the same way if they want to win a football game. So that's not very conducive to the whole white power narrative either. Um, so that was a, a huge source of exhaustion, but what was most exhausting was when people I claimed to hate treated me with kindness. Mm. And I was very fortunate that over and over again, throughout the seven-year period I was involved in hate groups, there were people like a Jewish boss, a lesbian supervisor, black and Latino coworkers who refused to capitulate to my hostility. So everything I did back then was meant to provoke hostility. It was meant to get people to hate. And if they hated me, it was all the better. So when people would respond to my hostility by wanting to fight me or cursing me out, like they were literally putty in my hand. But these brave people who treated me with kindness refused to capitulate to my actions and instead, they took control of those interactions. They said, I'm not going to let you dictate the terms of engagement. I'm going to dictate them. And the rules are, this is how human beings should treat each other. All right, we've got, uh, we've got that. the music playing. And so I, I want to ask you to hold over if you can, if you have sure. time. Okay, perfect. So we'll, we'll continue our time with Arno Michaelis right after these messages. Stay there, everybody. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. As if college students aren't already totally triggered, George Washington University hosted a workshop for students and faculty on the unmerited perks and favors showered upon white Christians, which are unavailable to everyone else. The Multicultural Student Services Center wants to teach minority students they are dupes. Meaningless buzzwords like ally, 
unconscious bias, and microaggression were employed for this purpose. The Bible is very clear that we are indeed privileged to be the beneficiaries of Jesus Christ's great work on the cross. We are also called to suffer with him, which is a privilege. Christianity is open to everyone, period. Wouldn't it be great if GWU got out of the business of oppressor talk and back to teaching higher ed? Because that is what the parents of those students are paying tuition for. I'm Stacey Washington. Find out more at StaceyOnTheRight.com. Hi, I'm Jerry. I always had to have the expensive clothes and sell the right drugs. But drugs and alcohol eventually broke me. So I came to Teen Challenge, and now I've been drug-free for 10 months. If you know an adult or teenager who's struggling with a chemical addiction, Teen Challenge can help. Call us today at 417-581-2181 or reach us online at teenchallengeusa.com. This is Urban Family Talk. Abraham Hamilton III. God put us in this world at this time to be salt and light. We don't fool because of the darkness that we're facing. This is not the first time in the world's history that it's gotten dark. God has called you and I to be his ambassadors, even in this dark moment. Tune in to the Hamilton Quarter, weekdays at 5 p.m. Central on Urban Family Talk. Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. We've seen God open up so many doors for us to help serve and love those who get affected by a natural disaster. As the trees and the wind started crashing down around us, my wife was, of course, very diligently praying, you know, Lord, please be with us. Very simply, we do it because God commands us to love others. I see these volunteers all as a gift from God. And I'm just grateful they're here, you know, helping out. It's a blessing. If you're interested in becoming a part of what God's doing through 8 Days of Hope, please go to 8daysofhope.com, click on Get Involved, submit your email address. I've noticed that whenever there's a time in my life when um, things might be a little gloomy, the number one thing that I can do is to go serve somebody. And uh, I would encourage anyone else to, uh, it's worth it, come out and do it next time if you didn't make it to this one. And, um, the Father will really bless you in it. Thank you so much for your prayers and volunteering with Eight Days of Hope. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right. Hey everybody, thanks for being here. I'm I'm just I'm I'm riveted by the uh, the words of our current guest. We have Arno Michaelis here. He's a former white supremacist and co-author of The Gift of Our Wounds. And we're just hearing how uh, love People loved him out of his state of mind where he, he had a voice inside that was saying, this is not, this isn't right. But in order to come out of it fully, he needed people who refused to accept his paradigm of hate. Instead, they showed him love and respect and uh, proper treatment. So uh, Arno, let's, let's unpack this a little bit more because this is the antithesis of what we're taught to do. We're taught to strike back, punch harder than we get punched. If someone does something to you, you take them to the authorities, you, you know, string them up, do whatever you can to get right. back at people who, who mistreat you. And you had a, a lot of, you know, you had a, these forces that had kind of hemmed you in with starting with your pain and then you're hemmed in with, this is who I am. I'm a white supremacist and, and I don't, I don't like these kinds of people. And that means I can't enjoy a lot of things I used to, but it's worth it because I'm right. And then you encounter people at your workplace who... You, you have to work with them because you need to work. 
and they're treating you with kindness. And so how did, how, was it like a pile on or was it over time? How long did it take you to kind of say, I'm, I'm done with this? <clears throat> well, that's a, a beautiful summary of it, Stacey. I, I really appreciate that. Um, it, it's the, the best way to look at it, and, and Partip and I do a lot of professional development with educators as well as uh, with businesses, and especially with educators, we want to get across the truth of cultivation, which is essentially that every action of ours plants a seed. And when you're dealing with people who are suffering and people who have been through trauma, more often than not, you're, you're not going to see any results um, from that seed being planted. All these people who treated me with kindness uh, as far as they were concerned, it, it probably looked like they were just talking to a wall. It probably looked like it wasn't having any effect on me. There were honestly times when people were treating me with kindness, and I literally ran away because it, it, it's so, it was so disconcerting to me. Like, I'm trying to hate black people, and this sweet old lady is being very nice to me. Like, this is messing up my whole program. <laughs> I, would, I would flee. I would get out of there as fast as I could. And I'd go home to my dingy apartment where I lived with a bunch of other drunk skinheads, and I'd get wasted, and I'd go out in the streets, and I'd pick a fight with the first person I could find, like trying to put as much distance between myself and this singularity of humanity that I just experienced. But the, the human psyche does not work in terms of subtraction. Once something happens to us, it is part of who we are from that day forward. It can't be erased. It can't be taken out. And despite my best efforts to tear these seeds out of who I was, and I tried every single day as hard as I could, they took root and they grew to leave less and less room in my heart for the kind of hatred necessary to, to hurt people, and importantly to say, to hate myself, which I, I certainly did throughout this entire process. I, I tried to kill myself uh, twice by slitting my wrist. Both times I was literally, my life was saved by my skinhead girl girlfriends, two different ones who stopped the bleeding and called ambulances. And it could certainly be argued that the, my entire seven years in hate groups, if, if not my entire 20 years of heavy drinking, was an ongoing suicide attempt also. Um, that those seeds that were planted ultimately they could not do anything but come to fruition. And so after seven years, those seeds had produced exhaustion to the point where I'm looking for an excuse to get out. And that happened in like a two-stage process. In 1994, my girlfriend and I broke up, and I became a single parent to my 18-month-old daughter. So go figure, but hate and violence and alcohol is not a recipe for a healthy relationship between a man and a woman. And a couple months after I became a single parent, a second friend of mine was murdered in a street fight, and by that time, I had lost count of how many of my friends had been incarcerated, and it finally hit me that if I didn't change my ways, death or prison was going to take me from my daughter. So that was, that was my moment to walk away, but I honestly believe that had everything else not been in place, had those acts of kindness not happened, had Seinfeld not aired, had I not been a Green Bay Packer fan, had my parents not given up on me, um, or had my parents given up on me and, and instead of uh, sticking with me like they did, if any of those things were out of place, that second murder could have driven me further into the movement uh, rather than out of it. So nowadays, every single 
day of my life. I spend a good part of that day in gratitude that I'm no longer that person and definitely in gratitude for all the people in my life uh, who uh, helped to, to divert me to a better path. Wow. So I'm, and I'm, please don't feel pressured by this question, but this is Christian radio. And I'm wondering if <laughs> sure. there was a faith component at all, you know, to, to the conversion that you experienced, because you talk about gratitude and love um, and, and that there were these inextricable pieces that you had that, that happened, you know, like Seinfeld, the TV show. When I think of it, I, I don't think of what you just described. I mean, I enjoyed it a lot when it was on, but it wasn't that that's not one of the TV shows I consider to be momentous for me personally. There, there are a couple, sure, sure. but not Seinfeld. But for you, it really made a difference. Do you, was there a faith component at all? Did you have any Christian friends or anyone who was a Christian who stepped in as well? Well, I, I I should begin this answer by saying that I'm a Buddhist. I, I've taken a refuge vow. Uh, my Tibetan refuge name is Nezung Chosum. It means Renunciation Dharma Bridge. Uh, I meditate daily, and for me, my spiritual jam all comes from the Dharma, which is the teaching of the Buddha. But I I love Christianity. I, I love the teachings of Jesus Christ. I love doing talks in churches, which I do a ton. And um, the first talk I ever did in a church, which uh, you can find on my YouTube channel, My Life After Hate, uh, creatively entitled Me and Jesus, I talked about how throughout my entire life I was literally like Antichrist for one reason or another, from like every possible angle you could imagine. And it wasn't until I started meditating and, and studying Dharma that I had this epiphany where one day I, I'm reading the teachings of the Buddha and I just kind of like leap up and I'm like, oh, if everyone was a Buddhist, there'd be world peace. And I wanted to like grab people by the collar and be like, have you heard the good news about the Dharma? And and then I kind of checked myself and I'm like, wait, who do I sound like now? And, and I recalled all the times where I would kind of poo-poo Christians who would come at me like that. And, and it hit me then that if a human being finds the embodiment of love and forgiveness in the teachings of Jesus Christ, that's there's nothing more beautiful than that. It, it's it's no to me it's no more or less beautiful than me finding those same qualities in the Dharma, or party finding it in Sikhi, or my Muslim friends finding it in the Quran, or my Jewish friends finding it in the Torah and the Talmud. It, it's to me human spirituality en- engages you with what's best about our human experience, which to me are love, forgiveness, courage, wisdom, compassion, kindness, like those things that make life such a wonderful experience. And and to wrap it up, I, I would say faith is absolutely crucial every single day because it's it's so much easier to to look for reasons to be discouraged and look for reasons to be outraged, and our society is like this big outrage machine right now from all directions, from all political polls. Everybody's outraged about something, and and it's very easy to fall into that mode. I'm as susceptible to it as anybody else, but when you have faith that our existence is a basically primally good process and that underneath all this stuff that's happening, that goodness is always there, then you have the power to shape the reality that you live in. 
and and that's something that I work on every day. And and for people who who find the ability to do that through the teachings of Jesus Christ, through the Bible, through fellowship in church, like more power to them. They're my heroes. Thank you for that. I I wanted to kind of understand what kind of uh, faith tradition that you were coming out of with with a history like that. Um, I I also want to thank you for writing the book and for joining us today. It's been uh, really. It's it's a fascinating conversation because I, I can honestly say you're the first uh, person I've ever spoken to who used to be a white supremacist. <laughs> and um, to be able to have this conversation, it's been really it's it's been a, a real privilege to get to talk to you and to hear more about the book. I put the link in uh, on the, the live streams and you can find it on the Facebook page for the listeners who want to read or get the audible download. It's on Amazon. So easy to access. And uh, I wish you the best with all of the the speaking and and spreading the message that um, we can actually really plant seeds when we encounter people who are are sucked into this kind of hate that they're they're not lost causes they can come out of it and we can help with that by being kind. Uh, Arno Michaelis, former white supremacist and co-author of The Gift of Our Wounds, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Stacy. I really appreciate your your insight and and your voice as well. Thank you. It's been great to talk to you. Um, so yeah, good to talk to you. So we, we have a few minutes left in the show. Um, and I, I would, you know, I'm, I'm planned to add him to my prayer jar to pray that, cause I, I, I hear the joy in his voice when he talks about being a Buddhist, but I would love it if he knew the joy of, of Jesus Christ, which is ultimately better. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's the truth. So I, but I, it's, it's fascinating to get to hear him describing the pain that he underwent, the the things that started him on the path to white supremacy and how the resultant actions of others, both the negative actions that they took, that they were, they were arrested, they were killed, they were, you know, and taken from him, their friendship was removed through, through different horrible circumstances, that those were really the kind of turning of the corner for him. And then it was coworkers and people who they refused to treat him in kind, they turned the other cheek and they were kind to him and they were loving towards him. And that those were the things that really made a difference in him coming out of that lifestyle. It's a lesson for us all. We all have the tendency to want to strike back and to defend ourselves. And, you know, I'm a big believer in the second amendment and defending yourself. So that that's not what I'm referring to here. I'm talking about in the verbal arena and in, um, you know, when you're working with someone and they're difficult to work with, or you're living with someone and they're difficult to live with, or they're your relative and they can't give you what you need. Um, I'm sure everyone has a situation in their family where there's a family member who the role that they're supposed to play is not the role that they play. And you desperately want them to play that role and to fulfill your need for that person in your life. And they refuse to. I have that situation in my immediate family, not my husband and my kids, but uh, the next level up from that. And it is a difficult place to be to every day be looking for this behavior and this activity from a person and they won't give it to you. And so the reaction is you want to strike back. You want to fight back. You want to um, you want to you want to kind of orchestrate the situation. But it sounds to me like uh, if we can take anything away from the Arno Michaelis interview, it's that when we're kind and when we do not respond to the evil behavior of others in the same way that we can make the biggest difference. So I definitely think this was a worthwhile interview and I'm so glad he was able to come on the show. 
So we have a little bit of in, um, audio from Kellyanne Conway that I want to sh- end the show with. She's talking about Jim Acosta for sh- and his, his shouted questions, a really unprofessional behavior at the Singapore summit. He, um, he just was so uncouth. And so she had something to say about us, number four. Kellyanne, this headline will get your attention and make you click on it if you're on online. This is from the Daily Wire. Watch. CNN's Jim Acosta interrupts historic signing ceremony, shouts at Trump. That was their headline. If you click on it, this is the video you see. Mr. President, did he agree to denuclearize, sir? We're starting that process very quickly. Very, very quickly. Absolutely. Did you talk about auto warm beer, sir? Hmm. So there are some critics, Kelly, Kellyanne, saying that he was choosing the wrong moment, a historic moment, to throw out questions to the president. And then uh, the 2020 campaign manager for President Trump, Brad Pas- uh, Parscale, who's been on our show before, he's now calling for Acosta to lose his press credentials. He thought it was inappropriate. What are your thoughts and what are the president's thoughts? Well, some people in the White House press corps do that routinely. Uh, They want to make things about them. I'm not naming any names because why give it oxygen? But they certainly want to make it about me, myself, and I on Twitter. They're all a hot mess in the kind of snark and bark towards this uh, president and those who work for him, um, including here at the White House, in the cabinet, and elsewhere. uh, Things that would not pass editorial muster in a newspaper. I call it social media muscle, cable news cojones. Many of them (laughs) demonstrate that but don't have the courage. Mm. Yeah, it's a lack of self-control and it's pretty horrible to watch. It's even more horrible to experience it firsthand. And I felt like it was a really, it was one of the low points of the, uh, the summit because Jim Acosta yelled questions at Kim Jong-un and we were trying to put our best foot forward. So anyway. That's the show for today. God bless you. I hope you guys have a wonderful evening. I'm actually back on the radio in one hour, filling in for Abraham Hamilton III on the Hamilton Corner on American Family Radio. Tune into that, and I'll be back with you tomorrow. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of Urban Family Talk, Urban Family Communications, or American Family Association.